This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Arno Michaelis. If you missed part one, do yourself a favor and go back and check that one out from last week. And now back to our conversation. We've seen too much in recent combat experiences of, of good men becoming not so good men. There's even a book about that, uh, about uh, Hitler's followers, something about good men, a gathering of good men, something like that. I forget the exact title, but it talks about how ordinary people, oh no, it's, I think it's called Ordinary Men, uh, how ordinary people can be, can be, you know, one compromise at a time stacks up and it's compounding and then you become a bad man yeah it, absolutely and, it, and it's you're right it, it's so the, the the not even the parable but the image of the you know the the frogs in the, the slowly boiling water yeah like oh this is a little warm it's kind of nice so oh, it's, it's okay getting, getting really <laughs> hot now but i'm really sweating the next thing you know you're you're done and and quite often violent extremism happens in that way yeah whether it's white nationalism whether it's radical islamic related ideology i've been working in counterviolent extremism for 12 years and working on a, on a in a different angle than than you have as a seal rob and as, as you know you know and i and i i i'm not a pacifist as as that which is why powerful peace was so resonated so much with me because i i think that you know we need to pray for peace but prepare for war and, and right. be ready for a kinetic response when when there's no other option exactly. but as, as you point out if you don't have a balance of the hard and soft approach all you're going to do is exacerbate whatever circumstances led to the violence in the first place right even the sec def said bob gates said uh are we creating more than we're killing when he recognized what was happening in GWAT, the global war on terror, and our and our overaggressive response to insurgents, we in many cases created terrorists out of insurgents, and we created insurgents out of neutral parties, and we created neutral parties out of people that were pro-America when we walked in. It's complicated. It's it's super complicated, and it's also it it brings to mind. Um, I Sun Tzu's Art of War was a very influential book for me, and and believe it or not, I first read it as a neo-Nazi skinhead. Back then, in the mid-80s, there was a, a terrorist group called the Bruderschweigen, also known as the Order. Mm-hmm. And these guys knocked over an armored car. They stole tens of millions of dollars. They murdered a, a Jewish talk show host. They were gearing up to like kick off a, a huge race war. And we idolized them. And it was, in my case, it was a lot of lip service. Mm-hmm. I, I, there, there was a point where... Uh, uh, skinhead buddy of mine I knew from down south showed up in Milwaukee one day in a stolen car full of guns with a bunch of money in the trunk and he's like Arno I'm gonna go rob banks and to fund the movement do you want to come with me and I was like uh you know I I totally would <laughs> I've got I, a thing yeah, but I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, I really got to run this crew here. These, these guys, <laughs> I, these kids, I, they need guidance. And I, and I basically weaseled my way out of it. Cause I, I was like, and not to say that there's nobility in that, but like, this is a guy who, who was that hardcore, like yeah. he was going to do something. And when I was presented with, with that option, I, I, I weaseled out of it. 
Well, you um, saw that it was not a proper path, even as, as twisted as your mind was. I was, at the I time. was scared. I was scared to do it. I didn't want to go to prison. I didn't want to get shot. I, I was scared, despite all the, the, the hard guy shit I talked. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, we would love to talk about the order and how awesome they were. And, and in, in that context, uh, kind of an older neo Nazi guy I knew said, You got to read Sun Tzu's Art of War. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'll sanitize my response, but I'm like, that, That's a book by an Asian. Yeah. <laughs> like, why would I want to read that? And he's like, just shut up and read it. Like if, if you're going to fight, you need to, you need to read this book. And I was like, okay. And I read it and I, I did, I did see value in it back then. I saw value in a lot of the tactical stuff. And right. I, I remember reading it back then. And then about four or five years ago, I read it again and, and found all sorts of new value in it. And, and one of them amongst a host of, of wisdom, the, the one I keep coming back to is, again, a paraphrase of Sun Tzu. He said, if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you need not fear the result of 100 battles because exactly. you will prevail in all of them. He said, if you know one or the other, you're going to win half your battles. If you don't know either yourself or your enemy, you will not win a single battle. And I, I think a lot of the response to racism nowadays and the response to violent extremism as you as you mentioned uh, the the response of the war on terror we don't know our our opponent at all we don't know how they function the objective of the so-called islamic state at all whether you're talking about isis or al-shabaab or al-qaeda what have you is their their objective and this is like flat out dictated in ISIS propaganda, their objective is to eliminate the gray zone. Mm-hmm. ISIS had a, a, a pamphlet that was titled that, and they they sent a directive out to their people. We want to eliminate any sort of, of non-binary thinking amongst Muslim people and amongst non-Muslim people. So when, when they committed their atrocities, running people down in Nice or, you know, long list of, of horrible things that ISIS has done, they want all non-Muslims to be terrified of Muslims, mm-hmm. and they want all Muslims to feel persecuted and marginalized by non-Muslims. That is the binary that they are, they are their objective that they are trying to achieve, and that's why they commit these atrocities. They don't think they're going to win anything by running down you know little kids and old ladies and knees right. in itself, but the response from civil society. The, the coming down like a ton of bricks, like you pointed out, that's what they're trying to provoke. The real enemy. Now we can divide and now we can really have something to push against. Now we can really radicalize and mobilize our followers and the exactly. And, and I, I certainly don't need to explain to you, <laughs> but terrorism is a force multiplier. Yes. It, it's, it's a strategic a, outcome from a tactical activity. Exactly. It, it's a way that a, a very like infinitesimally smaller group can not only influence, but like jerk around a, a much larger, like numerically superior, technologically superior group. And that's what's been happening since nine 11. Um, and, and not it, these, these tactics are not unique to the so-called Islamic state. This is the Absolutely. exact same tactic that this miserable messed up kid in Buffalo just, just employed things. And, and, and he makes no bones about it. He had mm-hmm. uh, Dylan Roof's name and Anders Breivik's name and Sean Terrence's name on his, his assault rifle. Like they, right. they study the way these other guys work 
and they try to take it to a next level and, and they use the exact same tactics that the so-called Islamic State uses. Even our political divisions today are based on hate and fear. Let's let's warn our people against the depredations of those people. They want to destroy America. The other side always wants to destroy America. Well, and exactly. Hate, very useful. Exactly. And, and that's, that's what happens when you allow your opponent to dictate the rules of engagement. Now, again, I, I don't know that this, I would imagine this is so elementary that they don't even need to teach it in SEAL training, but <laughs> it's not a good idea to allow your opponent to dictate the rules of engagement. Exactly. I, we want I to always, drive the conditions. <laughs> right. You, you want to make react. Them, I, I, sports is always a great example of this. I, I I love hockey. The Stanley Cup playoffs are happening now. It's actually killing me to miss the Battle of Alberta. <laughs> um, I'm in Geneva. But in, in a hockey game, in, a, in an American football game, in a UFC MMA match, every single interview is going to be like, we're going to make them play our game. Yeah. Like we, our, our game is we, we're, we, we hit hard. We played tight defense. We're going to make them play that game. We're not going to play their run and gun game. Like they're 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 fast. They're they're very talented. If we just let them fly around like they want them, they're, we're going to lose. And we, when it comes to social issues like racism, like sexism, like homophobia, the the game that perpetrators of all those things want to play is one of separation. Mm-hmm. They Divide. they need they they their game is that well. We are more different than alike, and our skin color dictates that. Us versus them. Exactly. Us versus them, in-group versus out-group. Violent extremism 101 is that my noble in-group is being oppressed by the evil out-group, and we have to fight back with everything that we got, otherwise we're going to be exterminated. And that is the exact same story that you'll hear from white Nash that, that was in the manifesto of this kid in Buffalo. It's exactly mm-hmm. what he wrote. Um, and <laughs> interestingly, I, I do, uh, uh, you're, you know, my buddy, uh, Mubin Sheikh, of course, from, from social media and, and his, his media appearances and whatnot. And, um, you know, my guy, Chris Buckley as well. Yep. Uh, we'll be former, talking soon about parents for peace. Excellent. Excellent. Um, you know, Chris and Mubin work in Parents for Peace. Uh, Chris is a former member of the Ku Klux Klan. Mubin is a former uh, violent jihadi. And Chris and Mubin do more these talks more often nowadays than, than Mubin and I used to. But Mubin and I have done a lot of talks about the similarities, not, not just similarities, but almost mirror image of white nationalism and like violent Islamic-based yes. terrorism. And I, we were doing one uh, a talk one time, and somebody asked me to kind of expound on the role of anti-Semitism in, in white nationalism. And I said, well, we believe that there was this, you know, thousands-year-old plot by Jewish people to exterminate the white race, and that we mm-hmm. had to fight fight back against it with everything we had, and that everything in pop culture and media was was Jewish propaganda to to uh, make the, this genocide happen. And that's why we, we hated Jews and we blamed them for everything wrong in the world. And then it, they, they said, well, moving, what was the, um, what was the angle of anti-Semitism and the role in, in your narrative? And he's like, pretty much the exact same thing as that. You just swap white race with Muslims. Yes, <laughs> Otherwise it yes. was the exact same, exact same story. And that fringe theoretical 
perspective is now being popularized mainstream on certain social and 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 news in air quotes news outlets as replacement theory, which is a dangerous slippery slope for us as a people to start letting that get out there. And I mean, I'm not talking about censoring, but again, confront the ignorance and the blindness and the fear with conversations with diverse points of view, because replacement theory is now getting some traction. Well, and, and again, the way to, to kneecap the whole great replacement thing is to say, okay, who's white? Exactly. <laughs> Let's make a you're, list. You're, right, you're all on about white people. Um, are Jews white? I, right. I know all sorts of blonde hair, blue eyed Israelis. <laughs> no, no, they're not white. Okay, well, um, are Spanish? what about are the Spanish Spaniards? white? <laughs> Italians exactly. are, are Greeks white? Like it, it, Hitler couldn't nail down who was white. Exactly, he, he wasn't entire, white apparently. <laughs> right, he had entire like divisions of people like dedicated <laughs> to measuring skulls and angles of your face and trying yeah. to establish like what's Aryan and what's not. And then the other like very poignant thing to point out to the the replacement theory people is, and again, this is this is a la Chloe Valdery. She said, you know, I hear all these people talking about making Europe white again. As far as I know, Europe was overrun by Huns, overrun by Mongols, and overrun by Moors over <laughs> over the past couple thousand years. Yeah, the blood's so in there. Right. So it's, it's hard to, so, so, you know, when was Europe all white? And then if you can put your finger on that, you're looking at like the dark ages where all those Europeans were burning each other as witches and like it's using any excuse to slaughter each other, take each other's shit. My, my, the Michaelis family way back when, supposedly we were like feudal lords. Mm-hmm. And we had a little keep and we had a bunch of peasants lived around. They come running inside the keep when the other guys are attacking us and vice versa. Like that was what was happening when Europe was quotes all white. Yeah. The great, so <laughs> the great civilization. It, it's, it's a, it's a, um, in CVE space, we talk, we call that a return narrative. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something that's common to all violent extremist narratives, whether it's white national is talking about, you know, some mythical time in the past when Europe was all white, never mind what was actually happening then or what the condition of the living was and what society was like, but just this, again, mythical time. In in the, the ISIS space, they would talk about bringing back this caliphate, which, which again, was never really existed the way that they, they say it's going to exist. Right, an and ideal. Then, in the in the far left, we have everybody talking about decolonizing things. Mm-hmm. Like we're gonna we're gonna decolonize this, we're gonna decolonize that, it, it, as if and, and not to marginalize the the horrors of colonization, which colonization, which which certainly were were myriad and impactful. But the bottom line is is that it, it wasn't like a Shangri La until the mean Europeans came around. Every society in human history leading up to today was more and more stratified the, the farther back you go. Right. So, it, you know, it wasn't like the, the pyramids of Giza were built like as a volunteer community project. Yes. It, it was, it was, it it was wasn't slave a civil conservation corps. Hey, let's exactly. Get exactly. So we, we just, we need to have perspective and, and be wary of these return narratives. And, and again, I, I, you know, maybe this is the Buddhist in me, but I think we need to be, be paying a lot more attention, it, not, and not to ignore the past, of, of course, but we we need to be uh, much more present than than we we have been. And exactly. that's whether whether you're an individual or or we're a society, we got to look at where we're at right now and what's happening, and and 
by all means have an aspirational vision of the future, but and, and have an honest and and inclusive understanding of the past. But but at the same time, like realize that what's most important is the present. Thich Nhat Hanh just passed away, the Vietnamese teacher, and he talked about appreciation all the time. And he said, "Hey, just if you're just eating a segment of orange." Yeah. Let that mouthful of orange, the juice, the texture, let that be your entire world. Let just, just be in that, be in that moment, be appreciative, be grateful. And if you can focus on every bite of orange, I think we can focus on other things like when I get a latte or my car's working or my <laughs> limbs aren't broken. There's a lot to be grateful for, but, but we prefer the easy way of let's go hate somebody. Right. You know, it, and the cool thing about your white people list is that Adam Sandler's given us a head start on that because he makes these songs that are strict lists of Jews. So we know who's <laughs> not on the list. Right? I think Tom Cruise is on his list. He's he's making he's making all these lists. So thanks, Adam. I, I I'm a huge Adam Sandler fan. Oh, I love um, the songs. Hey, Tom Cruise every, is a Jew. <laughs> smoke some marijuana. It's time for Hanukkah. It's <laughs> exactly. one of my favorite ones. Um, gra- Grandma, it's your grandson. Who Charles Manson? <laughs> it's your grandson. <laughs> Nobody wants to claim him. <laughs> I I actually um I it, it, and I'm I'm so fortunate in that I've been doing this work for 12 years and my greatest supporters have been these communities that I once hated. Yeah. Vehemently. I I've gotten a ton of support from the Afro-American community and and from African communities worldwide, a, a ton of support from Latinos and, and from Asians. But I, I think more than anybody else, the, the Jewish community has supported me in, in all sorts of ways. And mm-hmm. not only supporting me now, but I really owe a lot of my turnaround to like Seinfeld. I, <laughs> when I was an active white nationalist, my girlfriend started watching Seinfeld behind my back. Uh-huh. And she prevailed on me to watch it one night. I don't and, want to like it. Right. And I watched one show and I was hooked. And she worked Shaking on, the armor. It, it, it totally was. It, and it, she worked on Thursday nights when Seinfeld aired. And I had to tape it for her back on those um, archaic VCR <laughs> things that always blink 12. And we couldn't write Seinfeld on the spine of the tape. Uh-huh. Because if my guys came by... And saw that, <laughs> it, it, I, I get shot. I, I mean, it would, yeah. it would at the very least it would it would diminish my position in our group. Um, at, at the worst, I, I I could have been like killed for it. You so can disguise those with Svensson. <laughs> no, we actually we, we wrote we, we wrote on the side of the tape. We wrote Amber's second birthday party because we knew <laughs> no, no one would ever ask. Exactly, to watch nobody that. would check that one. Yeah, that one can hide safely on the on the shelf. But uh, Seinfeld being observational humor. And I still, I, everywhere, I, every day a Seinfeld reference comes up just going through the day and whatever I'm doing. And back then, as, as I enjoy the show on Thursday nights, and then on Monday I'm having a bowl of soup, and I'm chuckling about the soup Nazi, I would ask myself, like, does Jerry Seinfeld get to live in your whiter and brighter world? Right. And and if so, do you think he's going to be very funny if you're exterminating all the other Jews? And and the only answer to this inner conversation is that i was full of shit like the 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 brilliance the genius and the the humor of seinfeld among other things like this is spinal tap uh, all the long Mm -hmm. long list it goes to 11 it goes to 11 we uh, my band every saturday after we spend three four hours writing and rehearsing songs about 
how Jews are the scum of the earth and everything wrong with the world is their fault. We would all plop down on this like pissed up couch and watch this is Spinal Tap on a crappy little TV, and we knew it word for word. Uh-huh. We we covered tonight. We're gonna rock it. <laughs> like we would have four or five hundred skinheads going nuts to us playing a Spinal Tap cover. And, and in a movie that was written and directed by Rob Reiner, starring right. Harry Shearer. <laughs> Meathead. Yeah, involving One of those, those Jews the, in the media. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's that hypocrisy. And and, and really, again, it's it, looking at the stories that, that we define our relationship to the world with. That those Things like humor and pop culture and sports and, and film can, can help you kind of position the stories that you believe that, that define your relationship with the world and improve them so that, that you have a, a better relationship and a better life. We need to tell a new story like you've talked about so much, and I'm going to borrow that with credit because that's an important concept. Tell a new story. And I want, I want people to follow your story. I want people to keep track and see what's going on with you. I, I know from being a rabid follower of Arno Michaelis, <laughs> there are two things you truly value in life. And that is the, the next larger form of ice cream delivery and <laughs> the recombobulation chambers. Yes, the recombobulation area. And you get the healing. That's right. I, it's funny because they, I, uh, I've created my own superstition. And, and this started with flying with party who, when I first met him, was he one of these people who's very afraid to fly. And mm-hmm. I can understand that. But I, again, the, the objective fact is is that you're you're far more likely to die in a car accident than an airplane crash. Right. And, and I tried to explain that to him, and it didn't have any help. And then I, I was already in the habit of taking my recombobulation area selfie as I leave the, the Milwaukee airport, which is the only airport in the world with a recombobulation area. Oh, really? Oh, yes. It, now, every airport has a little place, a little bench where you put your shoes on and get your yeah. shit together after TSA. But only in Milwaukee is that area branded as a recombobulation area with the sign. So uh-huh. that's that's her claim to fame. Right on. Along with the great frozen custard and things like that. But I mean, I, fly through Milwaukee from now on. We'll <laughs> see. You got to. And so every time I leave, I take that selfie. And I told Party, I'm like, Par, I take a selfie like this every time I go, and I've never died in a plane crash. There you go. So, so if we take one, you're going to be fine. And now, um, the, when I left on this trip, I, I was in a bit of a rush, and I found myself almost like I took the selfie, but then I got on the plane, and I was actually into my, my next transfer before I actually posted it. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, dude, that's bad luck. That's <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell party. I didn't tell party, but I, I made it here safely anyway. But yeah, I, I, recombobulation is important to me. So how do people find that stream I love to see? And how do they find and contact you? How do they get in touch with your activity, your business, your work? Well, the recombobulations happen on Instagram. That's really the only social media I use nowadays. And my Instagram is just Arno Michaelis, A-R-N-O-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-I-S. You'll see a lot of cat pictures, uh, a lot of pictures of my grand dog, Basil, a lot of food. And, and also, uh, you know, when something serious happens, I'll, I'll share my thoughts on that. I, I posted recently about this atrocity that happened in Buffalo, which I, I'm heartbroken about. And, and Yeah, I, we need people to hear that, hear your perspective on it, because you understand it like nobody else. Well, and, and the bottom line is, I, you know, I, I posted a list of the names of the, of the victims, and, and I said this, this kid did not see these people. 
All right. he saw was black and he didn't even see himself as an individual. All he saw was white. And that, that was the, the, the Occam's razor to this situation. That's the simplest form of, of why this atrocity happened. But people are welcome to follow me on Instagram. I also have a, a blog at mylifeafterhate.com. And then uh, you can order, that's the name of my first book. You can order the book there also. And then I have a website with party called giftofourwounds.com which has uh, more information on our book, The Gift of Our Wounds, as well as the organization that uh, Pardeep and other survivors of the Sixth Temple shooting founded called Serve to Unite, where we engage young people with arts-driven service learning and global engagement to develop a healthy sense of identity, purpose, and belonging. And then probably most importantly, the organization that I work with, Party works for them also, as does Chris Buckley, as, and as does Mubin Sheikh. The organization is called Parents for Peace. Uh, they can find them at parentsforpeace.org with the number four. And if anyone listening is in a position to financially support Parents for Peace, that is absolutely huge. The, the organization does absolutely amazing work on a tiny, tiny shoestring of a budget. I am not a paid member of the staff, but Mubin, Chris, and Pardeep are. And I, I want to see them continue to to do the full-time work they do to uh, <clears throat> prevent and intervene in white nationalism, as well as intervene in political extremism of both flavors and religious extremism. Uh, Parents for Peace addresses all those issues. There's also a toll-free nationwide helpline in the United States where people can call to get help for a loved one or to get help for themselves. And there's a great triage staff uh, manning that line 24-7. And people can call and, and get the help they need right on the spot. Fantastic. And I, I do want to go back and really quickly go back over what you did touch on about Pardeep and your relationship and where it came from. But I don't think that was, I don't think we gave that quite enough attention. We can close with this, but you inspired a young man who murdered some men who weren't even Muslims, even though he was hateful toward Muslims, right? He he saw turbans, and he saw dusky skin, and he said, let's go get them. And when he killed those men, the elder man of the of those who were the, the, the victims, his son, Pardeep, and his family reached out with forgiveness. Yeah, the last person killed on August 5th, 2012, of the last of seven people killed by the gunman, whose name was Wade Page, was a man named Satwant Singh Kalika who had come to the United States with $35 to his name, not speaking English with his wife, Setpal, and his sons, Pardeep and Amardeep. He worked his ass off and over this period of 30 years, like literally achieved the American dream. He built this amazing faith community that was attacked that morning. And Satwan was the last person who died because he was fighting the gunman off with a butter knife. Mm. It was, it was the only weapon he could find, and he died about 10 feet away from a door that he could have run out of at mm -hmm. any time. Mm -hmm. The the Gurdwara that morning was filled with young kids and, and elderly people who were hiding in the basement, hiding in closets. Sutton's bravery bought enough time for Lieutenant Brian Murphy to arrive from the Oak Creek Police Department. Lieutenant Murphy gets in a firefight with Paige, uh, gets the worst of it. Lieutenant Murphy was shot 15 times survived because of uh, ballistic armor. The second responding officer, Sam Lenda, saw what was happening from distance with a tactical rifle. He mortally wounded the shooter who then took his own life. Pardeep, 
Slitwin's eldest son reached out to me in October of 2012 and really wanted to understand how this could happen. He also also needed some kind of accountability, which I, I had done a bunch of media in the wake of that shooting. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm responsible for this. I, I helped to create the environment that produced this shooter. I, I feel responsible for the Buffalo shooting and for Utoya and for Christchurch. Anytime these things happen, I, I feel like I've failed. And, and I, I, it really just drives me to triple down on, on the work that I'm doing to try to reach young people and, and let them know that this is a miserable way to live your life that they want nothing to do with. Pardeep and I had dinner in October of 12, and we've been dear friends and brothers ever since. We wrote that book together. We've traveled the world doing talks and really just trying to drive home that truth that we, it is possible for us to see ourselves and others. Party makes makes the point so beautifully, and he, he basically says it's it's easy to feel kinship with people who look like you, pray like you, eat like you, smell like you. Like that's easy. But what is truly spiritual is to feel that same kinship with people who don't look like you, and don't pray like you, and don't eat like you, don't smell like you, don't speak like you. Like that. That's when you've really attained a, a, a sense of spirituality. And I, I find amazing inspiration in that. And, and just to close on that, that idea of forgiveness, Pardeep says that to him, forgiveness is vengeance. And he actually forgives Wade Page with that sort of, of approach in that Pardeep has four absolutely amazing children. He's got an amazing wife. He has a widowed mother. He, he has a career, he's an uh, intervention specialist for Parents for Peace, he's an activist, he's an author, and all of those things need his time and energy. And if he spends one second hating Wade Page and, and, and sits there stewing in anger that would be completely right, right, righteous, he couldn't argue with that, that's time and energy that his family isn't getting that his career isn't getting, that his, his activism isn't getting. So rather than allow the shooter to hijack his time and energy, he says, I forgive you, and that's not going to happen. And and that that is vengeance. I can tell you from a white nationalist standpoint, that is the, the most devastating blow that can be dealt to them is to say, we're, you're, we're not engaging according to your terms. You're going you're gonna to engage in court of our terms. And that's, that's how I believe we, we prevail over white nationalism and all forms of violent extremism. They say living well is the best revenge, and that sounds like it's personification of that principle. That uh, Absolutely. I'm yeah, not going to be victimizing my children because you chose to harm my father. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's incredible. I cannot, almost can't find words. I'm deeply, painfully moved right now. Thank God we're not on video because <laughs> this is not, well, I've got a face for radio to begin with, but this is just uh, so fucking moving. So incredibly, incredibly, profoundly, deeply powerful. And I thank God we can get the, the message out there. And I thank you so much for gifting us this time. I don't know. It's, it's a gift to me, Rob. And, and anything that we've created here has been a collaboration between uh, everyone involved. So it's, it's something that I'm very honored to experience with you. And, and again, grateful for, for the work you do and, and the thought that you put out into the world. It's, it definitely makes it a better place. And 
I want to I want to make sure the listener can hear this. Parentsforpeace.org. You don't have to spell Michaelis. Don't worry about that. You'll find it when you get there. <laughs> Parentsforpeace.org. <laughs> that's how you that's the, the single bottleneck right into all the things Arno talked about for his Instagram with the cats and the and ice cream and recombination <laughs> and to Pardeep and to all the to the other boys, Chris and Mubin. This is just such a powerful, powerful, powerful thing. And I thank you so much, brother. Thank you, bro. And everybody, have a have a groovy time. We'll see you next week, and I'll probably have my act together by then. <laughs> Aloha, and see you soon. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois, the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.